Hey everyone, so I was a big Bill Maher fan for a long time. I actually played a Bill Maher clip on the inaugural episode of this show over a decade ago now. But maybe I should add that the word fan might be a little strong. I enjoyed his shows, Politically Incorrect and Real Time, but if I'm honest, I think I always found his humor to be a little cringy at times or kind of hit and miss, and I always found his attitude to be kind of smarmy or condescending. But I put up with it or had a certain degree of goodwill towards him because once again I found his shows, especially the panel discussions, to be entertaining or intellectually stimulating. And also, to be honest, because his politics seemed to align with, uh, with my own for the most part. But over the last year or so, I've noticed his politics or opinions drifting further away from or clashing with my own. And it's gotten to the point where I find myself pretty much disagreeing with just about everything that comes out of his mouth. And don't get me wrong, people are allowed to have differing opinions, of course, but personally, between his characteristic smarm and the fact his opinions also have been rubbing me the wrong way now, I've just, I've been finding him absolutely obnoxious. And thusly, I have to admit, I found it pretty cathartic when I was recently watching an episode of Breaking Points where Crystal Ball was interviewing Norman Finkelstein, and oh the sweet catharsis, the delight I felt when a frustrated Finkelstein referred to Bill Maher as an ignorant sack of shit, pardon my language. And I talk about Norman Finkelstein in that over two hour long unscripted episode that no one watched on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, but just a brief rundown. I don't know if he's retired from teaching or not, but he's a professor, an academic who's dedicated most of his adult life to studying the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and he's very sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinian people. And I want to state up front, because I know if I don't, one of his detractors probably will in the comments section, that he has had some controversial takes for instance, in the wake of the October 7th Hamas attack, or attacks plural, he published a Substack post in which he really seemed to rejoice in the fact that young Gazan men, Hamas fighters, had risen up and broken through Israel's defenses. And he claims this was before he was aware of the atrocities visited upon civilians. And this brings us to the one area where I personally disagree with Norman Finkelstein. And it's not a factual disagreement. It's more of a moral or ethical disagreement or just a difference of opinion. He's so sympathetic towards oppressed peoples that he sometimes seems kind of slow to fully denounce the atrocities committed by oppressed people or at least to denounce the people themselves. And he often references Nat Turner's slave revolt here in the U.S., in which Nat Turner led a slave revolt, and they not only targeted white males or white male slave owners, they also targeted women, children, even infants, slaughtered them. And his take is, there but for the grace of God go I, that if I was in that situation, that if I had been oppressed all my life and finally got a chance to break free and lash out at my oppressors, who knows what I would do. 
Whereas my take is, just as human beings, we should have a standard where we never tolerate atrocities, and we should strongly and fully denounce them without hesitation. And that should apply not just to acts of terrorism, but also to war crimes committed by a sovereign nation against a civilian populace, you know? And I don't want to mischaracterize Norman Finkelstein, who I really like. He does recognize that atrocities are atrocities and that they're a bad thing. He's just slower and more hesitant to condemn the people committing atrocities if he perceives them as being from an oppressed group. Once again, because he has this more forgiving, there but for the grace of God go I mentality. But that's the one area on this topic where I disagree with him. Otherwise, you know, I'm probably like 90-something percent simpatico with him. I share his sympathy for the Palestinian people, and I deeply appreciate the way he relays the history of this conflict. And speaking of that, I want to quickly give my own layman's kind of breakdown or synopsis of the history of the conflict, and I'll try to go as quickly as possible. And this will be good practice because I want to start doing YouTube shorts where maybe I revisit a topic I've already covered in a long-form episode, and I just try to condense it down as much as possible and turn it into a more easy-to-digest uh, short-form type of thing. So if you're not familiar, the modern state of Israel was founded in 1948, and how we got there was, near the end of the 19th century, you had the rise of a political-slash-nationalistic movement known as Zionism, the father of which, so to speak, was a Hungarian Jewish journalist slash social activist named Theodor Herzl. The goal of the Zionist movement was to establish a national homeland for the Jewish people. Zion or Zion, I believe, originally referred to a specific hill in Jerusalem, but the meaning expanded over time, and you can see that evolution in the Bible. And it came to be synonymous with Jerusalem or the Holy Land or the nation of Israel and its people as a whole. Initially, other places, including Uganda, strangely enough, had been considered as a potential location for the establishment of this new Jewish homeland. But in the end, Palestine was chosen, at least in part due to how it roughly corresponds with the location of ancient Israel the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people. And I think it is a very kind of romantic or moving idea, the idea of a scattered people returning to their ancestral homeland. But the problem with the plan is, or was, there were already people living there. There had been Arab inhabitants living in that area since at least the 7th century. If you count the indigenous peoples living there prior to the Arab conquests that may have come to identify as Arab over time, then even longer. And it should be noted that Jews and Arabs are thought to some extent, you know, to share a genetic lineage. Both peoples can trace their history back to the ancient Middle East, the Levant. I think it's thought both are probably descended from Canaanite tribes, etc. And I bring that up just to try to emphasize that both groups can trace their roots back to that general region. But back to the late 19th century in the Zionist movement, you start getting waves of Jewish Zionist settlers settling in Palestine. The area had been under Ottoman control, 
but then during World War I, the Ottomans were defeated and the British were granted a mandate or authority to govern over the area and it became known as Mandatory Palestine. In 1917, you've got the Balfour Declaration, where Britain declares its intention of helping the Jewish people establish a national homeland in Palestine, which it seems to me um, more, has more to do with their personal designs on the area and geopolitical machinations than a sincere desire to help the Jewish people. As the number of settlers continues to grow, so do tensions between the indigenous Arab population and the Jewish settlers. Fights and skirmishes break out. The British end up having to contend with both Arab revolts and Jewish insurgency. Unable to calm the situation or get it under control, Britain eventually relinquishes the mandate and withdraws from the region. And the problem is basically handed off to the newly formed UN. The UN put forward a partition plan, which would offer each side its own state. 56% of the region would become the Jewish state of Israel. 42% would go to the Palestinians. And the remaining 2% would be allocated for an international zone containing Jerusalem and Bethlehem. The Palestinian or Arab side criticized the plan, pointing out that even though they were indigenous to the area and had twice the population size of the Jewish settlers, they were nonetheless being given the smaller portion of land. The Arab leadership rejected the deal. Civil war broke out. The British-trained Zionist forces won, and over 700,000 or 750,000 Arab Palestinians were displaced. I believe about 500 Arab Arab villages were destroyed. This mass flight or displacement came to be known by the Palestinians or Arabs as the Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe. In the wake of the first Arab-Israeli war and the Nakba, there was a rise in anti-Jewish sentiment in neighboring Arab lands, and hundreds of thousands of Jews were driven or fled from said Arab lands, where they had lived for centuries in relative peace with their Muslim neighbors. These were indigenous Jews who had never left the Middle East, sometimes referred to as Arab Jews, some are referred to as Mizrahi. Many of these Jewish refugees ended up settling in the newly formed state of Israel. So as Bill Maher will point out, quote-unquote ethnic cleansing goes both ways, but he tries to wield it like a gotcha, when, to me, two wrongs don't make a right— Arab Jews having to flee their homes doesn't justify the Palestinians being driven from their homes prior. And it should be noted that many or most of these Arab Jews probably wouldn't have considered themselves Zionists. Once again, Zionism was a political movement or ideology that arose in Europe as a response to a rise in Russian and European anti-Semitism. And there were European Jews who rejected Zionism from the get-go on religious grounds because they believe the Jewish people aren't supposed to return to the Holy Land until the coming of the Messiah. And there's ultra-Orthodox Jews today who still feel that way and are sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians. And that reminds me of something I should have mentioned. Uh, as strange as it might seem, the Zionist movement and many of its early adherents were actually rather secular. They viewed their Jewishness more as an ethnic and potentially nationalistic identity rather than a religious one. But by 48 or 49, the end of the first Arab-Israeli war, having defeated and driven out the Arab-Palestinian inhabitants, 
What would be declared the state of Israel ended up with not 56% of the region as proposed by the UN partition plan, but with roughly 80% of the region. The Palestinians had been relegated to the relatively small areas we refer to as the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Jump forward to 1967 and the Six-Day War, Israel ends up occupying those areas as well, the Strip and the West Bank, and also the Syrian Golan Heights and the Egyptian Sinai, which I believe they gave back to Egypt, right? Um, once again, layman, not a historian. I'm doing my best. Feel free to correct me if I get anything wrong, you know, in the comments section. But since international law doesn't allow for the acquiring of new land through military conquests, the Gaza Strip and West Bank are considered occupied territories. Jump forward again to 2006, the Palestinians are allowed to hold an election. To everyone's surprise, Hamas wins. And since about half of Gaza's population are under 18, that means at least half of Gazans probably weren't even alive or are too young to remember when Hamas was voted into power. A good thing to keep in mind when you hear people trying to conflate all Gazans with Hamas. So I just wanted to give that brief rundown for people who are perhaps unfamiliar with the history. But okay, finally, let's move on to the clips. And so the first one that I wanted to, to get you to take a look at was a recent monologue from Bill Maher. Let's take a listen to a bit of that. But eventually, everybody comes to an accommodation, except the Palestinians. Was it unjust that even a single Arab family was forced to move upon the founding of the Jewish state? Yes, but it's also not rare. And no one knows more about being pushed off land than the Jews, including being almost wholly kicked out of every Arab country they once lived in. Yes, TikTok fans, ethnic... <laughs> Ethnic cleansing happened both ways. In Fedor on the Roof, the family is always moving to stay one step ahead of the Cossacks, but they deal with it. When they're leaving Anatevka, they say, hey, it wasn't so great anyway. <laughs> Nobody was a bigger colonizer than the Muslim army that swept out of the Arabian desert and took over much of the world in a single century. And they didn't do it by asking. There's a reason Saudi Arabia's flag is a sword. Arafat was offered 95% of the West Bank and said, no. The Palestinian people should know your leaders and the useful idiots on college campuses who are their allies are not doing you any favors by keeping alive the river to the sea myth. I mean, where do you think Israel is going? Spoiler alert, nowhere. And if you're not familiar, there's this whole controversy surrounding the chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I'm paraphrasing, I think that's it. And some people argue it's anti-Semitic or it's calling for the destruction of Israel. People on the opposing side will argue, no, it's just about the liberation of the Palestinian people, wherever you know they happen to be. And from my understanding, I think it's a, a chant or phrase that has been wielded by extremists but has also been embraced by people who genuinely want peace. So I don't know. Once again, there's a whole controversy surrounding it. And then with his characteristic smarm or condescension, Bill Maher ends by saying, where do you think Israel is going? Spoiler alert, nowhere. And there might be some fringe extremists who think that Israel should just hand over its entire state and pack up their suitcases. 
I don't know any serious or decent person who suggests that. When you listen to even very strong pro-Palestinian voices, they seem to be concerned with, first and foremost, ending the catastrophic loss of civilian life in this most recent conflict. I think we're up to about 21,000 dead Gazans now, the majority of which are thought to be civilians, the majority of that thought to be women and children. And pro-Palestinian voices are also concerned about things like the continued illegal expansion of settlements in the West Bank, ending the occupation. And don't get me wrong, I I think there's hateful people on both sides who would like to see the other side just wiped out or just go away. But once again, I don't hear any serious, decent people engaged in debate about this topic suggesting that Israel shouldn't exist. I personally think, you know, we can argue about the ethics of how the modern state of Israel was founded, but it exists now. And I think every nation has a right to exist, a right to defend itself. So I don't question Israel's right to defend itself, say, when it's subjected to the type of attack or coordinated attacks, plural, we saw on October 7th. I think the question is, what degree or kind of military response is appropriate? And if it isn't too presumptuous of me speaking on behalf of the world, it seems like the majority of the world thinks that Israel's response has been excessive, heavy-handed. Once again, it's thought there's been about 21,000 people killed in Gaza now, the majority women and children. And I think if you go with Euromed Monitor, uh, the number is much higher because I think they take into consideration people who are presumed dead under the rubble, etc. I I was listening to Kyle Kalinske. I think he was saying their number is closer to 30,000. About 2 million people have been displaced. Some people are calling it a modern Nakba. In the Nakba, it was about 700, 750,000 displaced. This is 2 million. So to reiterate, I don't think in general people have a problem with Israel deciding to retaliate or respond militarily, although, yeah, you could get philosophical and say when you respond with violence, it just keeps the cycle of violence going. But realistically, when a nation is attacked, it's just expected they'll attack back or retaliate. And in fairness, I think there's also kind of a moral duty to try to hold people accountable or bring them to justice when they commit atrocities like, say, massacring hundreds of young people at a music festival. And that reminds me of something else I heard Norman Finkelstein say elsewhere that I wholeheartedly agree with. He said, I'm paraphrasing, that a part of any peace process should include a kind of international court where wrongdoers on both sides are put on trial. So Hamas for their actions on October 7th, and on the Israeli side, anyone who may have ordered or taken part in war crimes. And once again, Israel has a right to defend itself and respond when it's attacked. The question is, once again, what degree or kind of military response is justifiable and appropriate? And admittedly, I'm not a military strategist, but seems to me 
if Israel had focused more from the get-go, and I hate to conflate the Israeli people with their government. I'm, when I say Israel, I'm referring to the government, to the military higher-ups. If they had focused more on getting the hostages back, engaging in hostage negotiations from the get-go, and engaging in more surgical and somewhat restrained military operations, the public image of the Israeli government and the IDF would probably be a hell of a lot more positive right now. But instead, they proceeded to bomb Gaza into oblivion, displace 2 million people, kill in between 21 to 30,000 people, the majority of which civilians, the majority of that, women and children once again, and uh, creating a humanitarian nightmare. And I know I've been going off on a tangent, so let's finally listen to Norman Finkelstein's response to Bill Maher's comments. So the sort of core of the point he is making is um, Jews got kicked out of a lot of countries too, and it's effectively time for Palestinians to get over it and move on. Well, <clears throat> just as a general point, I find it rather amusing when I hear Bill Maher pontificating about if you see the longer clip about Byzantium, about the Roman Empire, about Muslim expansion, he knows as much about these topics as Joy Behar. The only difference between him and Ms. Behar is she reads her factoids off of index cards while he reads them off of a monitor. But as a factual matter, as Benny Morris said, the idea of transfer or expulsion was inbuilt and inevitable in Zionism. Okay? And so the indigenous population of Palestine, uh, the Arab later, they came to define themselves as Palestinian, but the Arab Palestinian population of Palestine naturally uh, revolted against that prospect. In fact, um, uh, Benny Morris writes, remember, he's now a right-wing historian, but Benny Morris writes that the driving force, the motor force of opposition to Zionism was the prospect that the indigenous population was going to be expelled if this, proper, if this idea were realized. Come 1948, a war breaks out. I'm not going to talk about who's right and who's wrong in the course of the war, but now... Uh, as ben David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of the state of Israel, said, he quoted the famous French expression, which is still quoted, when in war, do as in war. Namely, here is a prospect. Now we have the opportunity to realize the Zionist dream. And the population from the area that became Israel, 90% uh, of the population from the area that became Israel was expelled. Exactly what you would expect given what the ideology was, and an opportunity now availed itself. And they became the Palestinian refugees. So now Bill Maher says, well, basically he says, it's a done deal, get over it. Now, you know, Crystal, let's say you were fired from a, a job wrongly. What do you expect your friends to do? Do you expect them to support you or do you expect them to say, Crystal, get over it? 
I would hope they would support me. Exactly. So there is an obligation, a kind of moral obligation, among those not directly the victim, to support those to the extent they're able uh, to rectify a wrong. The fact of the matter is, and I have to tell you, I, I watched the Bill Maher segment this morning, and several times I had to just, you know, take a breath because he's such an ignorant sack of shit. Uh, it just nauseates me when I'm listening to this. He hasn't a clue what the history is. He really doesn't know anything because he's such an ignorant sack of shit. Because he's such an ignorant sack of shit. And the feeling I got, and I'm chuckling at myself because I couldn't resist looping that a bit there. <laughs> the, the feeling I get is that his knee-jerk reaction was to defend Israel no matter how excessive their military response was or is. And then he probably learned a little more about the history behind the founding of the modern state of Israel. And he was probably like, oh shit, how do you defend that? And then his talking point devolved into basically saying, yeah, maybe you guys got a raw deal, but suck it up and move on. <laughs> and the thing is, you don't even have to go there. You can condemn Hamas and their actions on October the 7th, as I do, and yet still recognize the plight of the Palestinian people and recognize that they're human beings who deserve better than being bombed into oblivion. But I'll get off my high horse and uh, end the episode there, as always. Thanks for listening, brothers and sisters. Until next time. And I'm probably going to have, uh, the next episode will be a non-political episode. Because he's such an ignorant sack of shit. Because he's such an ignorant sack of shit.